0: Standing here in the dugout is a great reminder that baseball is a team sport. It's not designed to be played alone, and it can't be won alone. When I was a kid and I played baseball in my neighborhood, we used what we called ghost runners. These are runners that replace real players, and in some ways it simplified the game. No relationship drama, no slow runners, and no significant limitations. My ghost runners are actually pretty awesome. But there's no ghost runners in life. God designed a game plan for life that's built around and for people. We live in a world with people, and that's not always easy. It can be the best of times and worst of times all the time. But there is a way to win with others and to win in life. There's an order to it. There's a sequence. It's different than what we've seen in the world or what the world says. But it is clear, and it includes others. God designed it. It starts with connecting with him at home plate. Then it requires us to win within through personal character as we round first base. And then, and only then, can we win with others and continue as we live in community. And that's not something that we can ever pass off to a ghost runner. Well, hello, Heritage! Heritage! Welcome to week four of Home Run Life. I want to greet those of our heritage family at Bendorf as well as QC West and those online, as we join you here from Rock Island. We're on a journey to discover a pattern. It's God's pattern for how we live life to the full, or what we're calling a home run life. And I want to take a moment to review the first few weeks of our journey, if we could. And if you've been leaning into the teaching, you may be able to do this all on your own, but let's do it together. We know that there is a pattern that God has to grow us, but there are also patterns of the world. That's why Paul wrote, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So there are patterns of the world, but there is a pattern that God seeks to grow us by, and that pattern involves four areas, or four growth gates, four bases for our purposes in home-run life. And that journey starts where? At home plate. It starts at home plate where we connect with God. Where we step into relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. Where we receive His power and His purpose. And at home plate is where we win dependence. At home plate is where we win dependence. It's where we, just, we place our trust in Him. We place all of our belief and support in Him that He's going to lead us through the process. And when we have His power and dependence on Him, that positions us to proceed to first base. First base is the area of character. It's where we're dealing with personal realities and issues of integrity. And it's where we seek to win within within our own lives, and the choices we make in the character battles at first base. Once we successfully pass first base, we can proceed to second base, which is the community base. It's where we're dealing with realities of relationships with people, and it's where we win with who? Others. We seek to win with others at second base. Until we do that, we can't proceed to third base. Once we do, we can proceed to this competence or performance base. This is where we seek to win results. And it's not just any results. They're the results that God has for us and the God-sized things He wants to do in and through us. But that's not the end. We proceed from, first, from third base back down around to home plate. And then once again, we receive that power from Him that we affirm that dependence on Him to at a greater level. That's the pattern that God seeks to grow us by. There is a sequence. There is a way to do it. That allows us to live the kind of life to the full that He has for us. And it starts at home plate. It starts at home plate where we receive power. Then it proceeds to first base where we refine character. But then next is second base. And second base is where we relate to people. And if we don't handle this base well, if we don't handle relationships well, we can cause a lot of damage to ourselves and to others and we can lose something we actually need and we can be in a place where we find our life so marked by sorrow and relationship with people that we're tempted to say forget it let's just cut out the whole thing with other people let's just go from home plate to first base and then the results and you me and God will take care of it just just me and God that's it but a home run life cannot be accomplished or lived apart from people it requires relationship with others It would be a mistake for us to cast away second base and think that we can live a home run life. It's not possible. It's a mistake to disregard relationships. When we make a mistake in baseball, it's called an error. When a player makes a mistake that allows an opponent to advance, it's an error. And sometimes they're small errors and sometimes they're big errors, We've all seen that. Let me just show you a few pictures of some, some errors. Here's the first one. This would be more common of, of two players in the same team not communicating in a way, they bump into each other and they don't catch the ball. That is an error. Not as dramatic as this next one, same scenario, but nobody wins in that picture at all. That costs everybody. But I'll show you one final one. This is a little more dramatic and this is one is just caught at a key moment of that error, so check it out. Yeah, buddy. Right square on the schnazola, man. He's going to feel that tomorrow. Look, when we make an error, it costs somebody something. When we mishandle relationships, it costs us. It was a number of years ago that Beth and I decided to order an electronic motorcycle for our youngest son, Daniel. It was like his sixth or seventh birthday. And we were excited, but it didn't arrive in time for his birthday. So he received the uh, anticlimactic IOU with a picture of the motorcycle. We were really bummed about it, but he was ecstatic, Man, he was excited, so excited that every day after that, he would ask me, Daddy, did it come? Daddy, is my motorcycle here? Daddy, is it here? Is it here? He continued that for days until finally the day that it arrived. He wasn't around, and I saw the truck come into the driveway, so I ran outside. I went to the back of the truck, and the end was open, and the delivery guy was pulling the box out, and I looked at the box, and it was trashed. Corners were missing, the lid was barely on, pieces of the motorcycle were falling out onto the metal floor of the truck and it was just rolling. And we lowered it down onto the pavement and and he handed me, gave me a whole handful of parts and he said, Sorry. Yeah, and I'm like this close to saying, Buddy, you're taking this thing back. But that's when Daniel came running around the corner of the house yelling, It's my bike! It's my bike! And I was tempted to try to explain to him, Partner, I don't think we can keep this, we need to send this back, but that would crush him. So I did a quick inventory, looked like the primary pieces were there, and and so we received it, the guy left, and we tried to put it together. And you won't be surprised to realize we were missing some pieces. A lot of them were nuts and bolts and washers that we could replace, but there was one piece that was essential for connecting the front wheel to the front fork that we didn't have. And unless Daniel was going to be this world-class wheelie rider, we had a problem. So I started checking online, I made the calls through those goofy automated systems trying to get to somebody who would give me the right information to get this part, and I didn't have any success. I then started, I went, I went to different m- motorcycle shops trying to see if they had anything to help me with. Most of them said no, and one shop gave me a piece that was close, but not quite. Unfortunately, I had a buddy that could help me machine that piece a little bit, and we were able to put that wheel on, hook up Daniel, and get him on his bike. And here's a picture of him in that first moment he got on his bike. Yeah, he's a wild man. He's a stud. So that was it, man. He was, he was ready to roll, and he ran that machine into the ground. Just hours on that thing. Look, whenever if you've ever ordered something, had it delivered to your home or to your office, if you've ever moved or helped somebody move, you know that when a package is mishandled, things can get messed up inside. That when it's thrown or dropped, when it's not treated with care, or not follow the handling instructions, damage results. And that ends up being frustrating and disappointing because it creates more work when something is not handled correctly than when it is. When it's mistreated and dropped, it creates difficulties. And, and some, sometimes things are handled poorly in deliveries, where, where things get, get dropped and damaged, and sometimes we drop other things. But errors and mishandling don't just happen in baseball and deliveries. They happen in life. And each of us have had experiences like that. And uh, some of us are in those experiences today. Today where something in our life has been mishandled or dropped, where things have turned our lives upside down, and we're dealing with that awkward, messed up reality that may be marked by significant pain or significant sadness. Those things that make life hard to live, like trying to ride through life without a front wheel. We know what it feels like to be in those circumstances. But the deal is that God has a way for us to navigate those realities. It starts at home plate with dependence, but it starts with two commandments that that Jesus referenced. It was in Luke chapter 27 that he said, look, the two greatest commandments are this, to love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Jesus did in that moment is he identifies those two commands as as really the, the foundation of living life to the full. But Jesus also goes on to give what he called a new commandment. It's a commandment that doesn't replace the other two, it adds to the other two. And he did it in John chapter 13, starting with verse 34. This is what he said. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So in this new command, he doesn't replace the other two, he adds to them, and he adds his own example. The way he lived, the way he loved, the way he related to people. And the, and the deal is, <laughs> that can push against our natural tendencies. Uh, some, for some of us, more than others. But all of us, to some level, to some degree, struggle to live, love, and relate to people the, the way Jesus did. Yet, God wants us to be in relationship with him and with other people. It's not always easy to do that, though. But it's essential. It's not even up for debate. When we study the Bible, we find that a home-run life isn't possible apart from people, apart from healthy relationship. We have to have and pursue and maintain relationships with others, or we will be less. Because a life of true significance is only found within the context of God-honoring relationships. Let me say that again. A life of true significance is only found within the context of God-honoring relationships. I'm not just talking about Christian relationships or relationships marked by mutual faith. I'm talking about how you and I conduct ourselves in relationships with anybody, with everybody. It's how we relate to them, it's how we love them, it's how we treat them, it's how we view them. A life of true significance is only found within the context of God-honoring relationships. And the truth is, many of us lack that kind of relationship and community. We know people, and we relate to people to a degree, but many of us lack the kind of loving relationships that Jesus speaks of. And we hold this, uh, I'd rather suffer alone than struggle with people perspective. And sadly, that's not often without cause, Because community can be hard. Community is messy. There are hurts. At at times it's not very pretty. And many of us have been burned enough, let down enough, that we're tempted to say, look, I'm just better off avoiding relationships with others. It's just too risky. But when we seek to do that, when we seek to go from home plate to first base and then cut straight to third, we never live a home run life. When we try to cut out people, we'll never see all that God wants to do in our life. We'll never have life to the full. I shared with you last week how for many years in my journey, I tried to do that, to cut from first base to third base. Out of my own personal insecurities and out of the pain in my journey, I wanted to limit and control and minimize others in my life. But my life was less as a result. A home-run life is impossible without people. And a life of true significance is only found within the context of God-honoring relationships. You see, God designed us to experience abundant life in community. He made us to be part of community who does life together. And for us to become everything we're supposed to be means we'll be in relationship with others. Without it, we will be less. Now, the deal is, it's not just others' dysfunction that contributes to the problem. We're often part of the problem as well. It reminds me of the story of a U.S. Navy captain. He was out at sea when he saw smoke coming from an uncharted island, and he decided to launch a rescue mission. So when they got to shore, they were met by a guy who, sure enough, had been shipwrecked. He said, man, I'm so glad you guys are here. I have been here for five years. The captain said, well, let's go. Let's get you out of here. And as they were walking to the boat, the captain stopped for a moment and said, are you sure you're, you're the only one on this island? The man said, yeah, I'm, I'm the only one on this island. They walked a little further, and the captain said, are you sure? The man said, Yeah, I'm sure. I think I would know. But why do you ask? The captain said, well, if you're the only one on the island, why are there three huts? The man said, oh, that's not a big deal. I I lived in one, and I go to church in the other. The captain said, okay, but what about the third hut? The man said, oh, that's where I used to go to church. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Listen, listen, as funny as that is, it speaks a painful truth that we are relationally challenged to the core. We struggle to be in relationship, even if we're the only one on the island. And in a broader sense, we struggle to be in community. Yet the Bible is filled with examples and directives and reminders that we need community. God designed us to experience life in the context of community, and we need others because we are more together than we are apart. You and I are more together then we are apart. Look, there's a big difference between isolation and solitude, and we need to know the difference. So let me frame something for us all. In the spiritual life, we have opposition. There is someone who seeks to make sure we don't live a home run life and we get called out along the way. It's not because that person cares about us at all or gives a rip about us. It's because that person hates God, and they want to hurt the heart of God, and they seek to do it through us. We know them by uh, several different names, the devil, Satan, Lucifer. Regardless of the name, the plan is the same. They, are, they hate God, and they are the enemy of God and the enemy of a home-run life. And Scripture tells us we are to resist that enemy because what that enemy seeks to do is to use things like doubt or discouragement or despair or even, even deception to isolate us from relationship with others and relationship with God. Because if we can be isolated from that community of relationship with people and relationship with God, now we're more vulnerable for Him to mess with us. It's through isolation that that happens. And isolation is a dangerous thing. In fact, Proverbs 18.1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. You and I may want to develop our spiritual lives in some form of isolation, but we can't. It can't be done apart from the pressure and the intensity and the grind of doing life in relationship with others. And a home-run life is found within the context of God-honoring relationships. So let's just take the concept one step further. We can experience solitude or isolation. And as I said, we need to know the difference. And I wonder if you know the difference today. You know, the easiest way to tell if you're in isolation or if you're really if you're dealing with solitude or, or isolation is to look at the focus. You see, solitude is a tool of God. It's actually a spiritual discipline where you and I step out of the busyness of life and relationships and we, in quietness and stillness, sit with our Heavenly Father. Solitude is a tool of God. And the focus is on God. Isolation, on the other hand, is a tool of the enemy. And the focus is on us. Our plan, our agenda, our expectations, our circumstances, our pain. And whenever we are in isolation, we are inherently uninformed. We lack perspective. There are voids in our life, gaps of information that we will either fill with our own assumptions or misperceptions, or the enemy will seek to fill with junk. And they, that, that gap space becomes the playground of doubt and discouragement and despair. And that isolation makes us Vulnerable. That's one of the reasons Jesus was so strong and clear about talking about how we deal with with relationship challenges when we hurt one another. Whether it's Matthew 18 or Matthew 5, we're supposed to go and interact with that person. Do it one-on-one. If that doesn't bring reconciliation, we're to get somebody else and go back and try again. And then there's a clear progression after that. But whether we've wronged somebody or somebody's wronged us, there's very clear instructions. There is a way to walk through that in a way to bring reconciliation. And when we humble ourselves and live in healthy relationships to others... We will follow that process. And then we position ourselves to experience true change in life and true growth through relationships. And we can actually become like Jesus in how we think and act and love and live. Because character is tested in isolation, but it's formed in community. Characters tested in isolation but formed in community. Hang with me for a second. We know that when we have a character first base battle issue. It happens here and we have a choice. It is on us. We're going to decide how we're going to handle that and what we're going to do. The beauty is when we have a relationship with God that we receive his power that allows us to handle those first base character battles with the ability to win, to say no, and to move in freedom past that. The deal that comes into this in the community formation reality is if we don't have healthy relationships with others, there's this point of vulnerability for us there. If we have relationships with, with, with others that, that's unhealthy, that, that are influencing us to make poor choices, again, there's vulnerability there. But when we have relationship with God and we have healthy relationships with others, God-honoring relationships with others, now we're positioned to truly win in those battles to where our character is tested in those moments, but it's formed through the community journey. Our character is tested in isolation, but it's formed in community. And we are more together than we are apart. Look, we've been using this, the journey of Joseph to help us unpack the realities of, of change and the, and the pattern God has for us in life. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at his section of the, the section of uh, end of Genesis 39 into chapter 40 and 41. We're going to skip and jump through some of that. If you want to turn in scriptures and follow along, you can. But we're just going to talk through the journey because up to this point, we know he started out as the favored son of his father, his brothers were jealous. They sold him into slavery. He ends up in the house of a military leader in Egypt. He, he resists the sexual advances of his master's wife, but yet he is thrown into prison. And if you've ever done the right thing in your life, but gotten unexpected results, then you can begin to understand how Joseph might have been feeling in those moments. You see, he's in prison for something he didn't do. But even though he's in prison, God's still working. God is showing him kindness and granting him favor so much so that the warden of the prison puts him in charge of everybody who's in there. Very much like what he did in Potiphar's house. The Lord continued to grant Joseph success even in those difficult circumstances. But sometime later, two guys arrive in that jail. They're both chiefs. One's the chief baker, and one's the chief cupbearer to Pharaoh. They both had gotten in trouble with Pharaoh, but they both have dreams. And Joseph interprets those dreams. God enables him to do that. And and for the baker, he says, look, in three days, you're going to be executed. And to the cupbearer, he says, look, in three days, you're going to be restored back to your position. And in three days, Pharaoh's having a birthday party. He calls the cupbearer and the baker together. He executes the baker and restores the cupbearer back to the place, just like Joseph said. But before the cupbearer left the prison, Joseph said, when this happens... Tell Pharaoh about me. I don't deserve to be in this prison. Tell him about me so that I can get out of here. And you know what the cupbearer did? He forgot. He forgot about Joseph for two years. Two years. Have you ever struggled with God's timing? You're, You're waiting, being patient with things, maybe things that are wrong or things that shouldn't even be? Have you ever not gotten the recognition you deserve or not received the justice that you're owed or been vindicated or validated or or just simply, simply valued? What if God is allowing or orchestrating those circumstances for a reason? To teach you. To, to help grow you like he did with Joseph. You see, it was two years later, that Pharaoh has a dream. And in those two years, Joseph, like many of us, was facing a situation where the primary solution was not changing his circumstances, but learning to win in it. And in this case, to win with others. That was Joseph's next breakthrough moment. And it comes as a result of Pharaoh's dream. You see, Pharaoh had what I call a Chick-fil-A dream. Seven fat cows came out of the Nile. Chick-fil-A, fat cows, you with me? All right, so then seven skinny cows come out of the Nile, but the skinny cows eat the fat cows, and it becomes a Chick-fil-A nightmare. Cows eating cows, not chicken. It's bad. He also has a dream similar about heads of grain doing the same kind of thing, and he wakes up, and he's freaked out, so he calls the, wi- calls the wise men and the magicians of his, of, of his court, and they can't help him out. And then suddenly, the chief cupbearer, not the smartest knife in the drawer, or sharpest knife in the drawer, goes, hey, wait a second, I know somebody. Now, it, look, if I knew a guy who could tell me what was going to happen in the future, I would not forget that person. and I may be tempted to make them my new best friend. But this guy forgot Joseph until now. And then he tells Pharaoh about him. So Pharaoh has Joseph brought to him. They clean him up, they shave him, give him new clothes, and he comes in before Pharaoh. And you've got to picture this, because here's Pharaoh. His cupbearer is probably standing next to him. I don't know if he's avoiding eye contact or making eye t- contact, like, I got you covered this time, buddy. I don't know what's going on. But he's brought before Pharaoh. And this is what Pharaoh says in verse verse 15 of chapter 41. I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said from Mr. Forgetful, my chief cupbearer, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And what Joseph does next is key. It's huge. He says, I cannot do it. I cannot do it. And I imagine that you could have heard a pin drop in that moment. Now, I don't know, if, if, if you'd been in prison for something you didn't do for all that time, and you had an opportunity to get out, you might be a little more inclined to say, yeah, what is it? What do I need to do? How can I help? But see, Joseph had learned what he needed to learn. And in four words shows he had one second base. He demonstrated a maturity that revealed he knew it was no longer about him. Verse 16, I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And in that moment, Joseph reveals a level of humility and selflessness that we hadn't yet seen from him. He understood it was no longer about him. I mean, just think about this for a moment. Joseph, the guy who started out as the favored son in fine clothes, braggadociously and arrogantly, lording over his brothers that they would one day bow to him, maybe being dismissive of those around him, caught up in his importance. But yet through pits and prisons, God moves him on a journey where he is now no longer a person of importance. And he's not wearing fancy clothes, but prison garb. And he's positioned in a place where he's serving and cleaning floors and doing things that he would have looked down on others for doing in the past. And what if in those moments, That that's where God begins to teach Joseph what it means to win with others, to consider others better than himself, and to no longer be so full of himself. You see, until we value people, we will use people. Until you and I value people, we will use people. Until we view them the way God views them, our lives will be less, and we will be stuck. We are called to love people and use things, but we tend to live in a way where we love things and use people. We treat people as commodities, what they can give us and what we can get from them. And we do that with leaders and employees and family members. It's what we can get from them. We do that from social status realities to things related to to pornography. With social status stuff, we do it because who we're beside, who we know, who we're connected to makes us important and it's about what we gain. When it comes to things like pornography, we use other people to satisfy our own desires and appetites. And we use them for our gain. And whenever we step into any relationship with people in a way that it is about us, we use them. And, and we cause damage in friendships, in marriage, in families, in governments, in organizations, in nations. Until we value people, we will use them. And I wonder where you are most likely to love things and use people today. I wonder where you're most tempted to love things and use people in your life today. Is it pleasure? An experience? Is it success? Is it money? Is it reputation? What errors, mistakes, are you making where the ball has hit you square in the nose and you're blaming others instead of owning your part in it? Where have you mishandled relationships in a way where you've handed the box in a handful of parts and all you've done is said sorry rather than starting to look for a way to make it right? Or where have you neglected relationships altogether and you're trying to use ghost runners? To run bases that only you can run. Where are you tempted to use people while you love things? You know, God was working to teach Joseph how to win with others so he could bring about the results he promised years before in that dream. But Joseph had to learn humility first, that it, learn that it was no longer about him. And Joseph allowed himself to be broken and rebuilt according to those priorities, God's priorities. Understanding that in a home run life, we love people and we use things. So what do we do with this? What do we do at second base, four weeks into home run life? I think I just want to challenge all of us to do two things. Just do two things. The first is to value others more than yourself. To value others more than yourself. This comes straight from the writings of Paul in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. That's pretty straightforward. I think the bigger question is, how? How do we do that? And I think there are a lot of ways to do that, but let me just give you two. Two ways to start to value others more than you value yourself. The first is to forgive what you can't forget. To forgive what you can't forget. The issue of forgiveness is a place that we either live in complete freedom or we end up becoming imprisoned by it. And Joseph had to work through forgiveness a number of times. He had to forgive his brothers. He had to forgive the slave traders. He had to forgive Potiphar's wife. He had to forgive Potiphar. He had to forgive the chief cupbearer. He probably even had some conversations where he thought he had to forgive God and work through some of the dynamics there. But winning with others means we forgive what we can't forget. We release it to God in complete dependence on Him. Forgive what you can't forget. The second part of that I want to challenge you to do is, seek, is to seek to give more than you take in every relationship. Seek to give more than you take. The greatest fellowship, the greatest relationships, the greatest community happens in the context of generosity. It happens when we give, when we give as God gave. So I want to encourage you to seek to give more than you take in every relationship. And if you do, you'll begin to see God do things you thought were not even possible. Give more than you take. You know, marriage is one of the best places to win with others, but it's also one of the hardest places to win with others. And we here at Heritage Church place high value on marriage, and we know it takes work, which is why it's why, one of the reasons we have a marriage mentoring program. And I want to give you an opportunity to hear a little bit more about that from a marriage mentoring couple, but also from a couple who has experienced the benefits of of engaging in this process, seeking to win with each other. So check this out. The mentoring has been a real blessing to me and I know to Pam too. Um, It's one, we've got to meet so many wonderful couples and kind of work with them and see the changes in them through the time as they discover each other. And... um, it also kind of helps us strengthen our marriage to remind us of the things that you know we started this to give to give back because god's done so much for us um but we can't outgive god he just keeps giving us more and more back and we didn't expect to be so blessed but we are very blessed so we've gotten something wonderful from every relationship with every mentoring couple and it's been we were talking how almost all the couples. We would not have met these people at all if it hadn't been for mentoring, if we hadn't been brought together that way. Our paths might not have intersected any other way. So we feel like we've grown in the relationship with people that we would have never met. And and that's exciting and fun and got some friendships out of it too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We learned how to be patient with one another we learned how to listen to one another. We also learned how to learn what love and respect was and how to incorporate it within our relationship, how to build a better foundation of friendship. And we really picked up on when we see ourselves struggling with, a, with an argument or a discussion, um, <clears throat> it hasn't turned into arguments anymore. It's turned into, hey, we're getting ready to go on this crazy cycle, we recognize the signs now, how do we fix this? Let's let's sit down and, and discuss it rather than going to our two corners and then separating, uh, which just spins us out of control. And we were doing a lot of that before. Now we, we've completely stopped that, we're on the same page, we're connected. Uh, we have amicable, good conversations and we get results every time. Um, the kids have seen it and they recognize it. Uh, They don't see mommy and daddy arguing anymore. They've had a happier lifestyle. We've been happier. We actually smile every day. And other people also see that we're happy and want to know why that we're so happy. And we also tell them that, you know, we went through marriage mentoring and, you know, that's the reason why we've fixed our marriage. If you're somebody who uh, is in a Christian marriage um, that you think maybe God is positioning you to be one of the marriage mentors, we're looking for couples to explore whether that's a good fit for you or not. And we're actually offering training November 2nd and 3rd right here at the Rock Island campus. And if you're interested in exploring that a little further, I encourage you to fill out the communication card and drop that in the offering at the end of our worship gathering. Uh, We place high value on marriage and know this kind of investment is important. It's one way that we win with others. And, And as we... As a church, seek to value others more than ourselves. As we seek to forgive what we can't forget and to give more than we take, we know that we can begin to win with others in every arena. So the second thing I want to move us to, to take away for this time today, is to let God change people. I want to encourage you to let God change people. Too often we, tr- we get caught up in trying to change people. We try to wrestle them into the growth gates around the bases. And, but the reality is that it's God who changes people. It's not us. And we can help or hurt that process And I want to encourage you to consider taking the posture that comes from one verse from Psalm 122. I think that if you can look at all of your relationships with this perspective, you'll begin to see God helping you win with others in in just a crazy cool new way. It's simply this in verse 9 of 122. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. No matter what you do, I will seek your good. When we depend on Him, when we win in first, ca- first base character battles in his power, then we're positioned to win with others in a way that brings him glory. Relationships are hard, man. They are hard. Hurting people hurt people. In fact, the relationships that bring the most joy can be the ones that cause the most pain. They contain the most risk. And the more important that person is to you, the greater and deeper the pain usually is. But I want to encourage you to let God change people. You do the right thing in it. Let him change people while you love them the way he does. While you love like Jesus loves. You know, there's not a single long-standing relationship in my life that isn't marked by grace and forgiveness. Not one. And I imagine the same is true for you. Because winning with others is not about success with them. It's not about just fun times and good experiences, but it's about loving them. It's about valuing them and viewing them as God does. It's not about how good or how bad things are. It's not about even how well they treat you. Winning with others is about how well you love them. How well you serve them. And I wonder what would happen if we all started to put others ahead of ourselves consistently. Valuing them over us and letting God change them you know what happens in joseph's story is that god gives him the ability to interpret pharaoh's dream and he moves from second base to third base and in fact not only does he interpret the dream god blesses him the point that he is raised to the second in command over all of egypt second only to pharaoh he goes from the prison to the palace in one day my friends only god can do that in a life that's why in a home-run life the, the results are are by God and through God and for God they're beyond us yet God seeks to include us and we're going to talk more about that next week as we step into third base realities but I want you to understand something as we wrap up today you are where you are for a reason if you're struggling God's trying to teach you something If he's positioning you and you're seeing wonderful results, it's because he wants to bring glory to himself through them. You are where you're at for a reason. And God wants to bring about the miraculous through you. For Joseph, that meant saving the the nation that would bring forth the Messiah, Jesus. And I firmly believe that God wants to take you places that only he can. But he won't be able to do it until you win with others. Out of dependence on him at home plate. Winning first base character battles. Rounding second. Out of his power. Considering others better than yourself. Truly winning with others in a way that honors him. I look forward to seeing how he does that as we step further in this journey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people. Thank you for your willingness to pursue us through your son Jesus. Thanks for not giving up on us. I thank you that through him we can have life and life to the full and I pray that you'd help all of us wherever we're at in, in moving through the bases and we're moving through those growth gates that you continue to teach us and specifically today help us Father to win with others help us to consider others better than ourselves help us to value people the way you value them and help us to release people to you and let you change them while we simply love them give us the courage and the wisdom to do that not just so that Life goes well for us or we get to see good things, but so your glory is revealed through our lives. Even if that means we sit in pits and prisons for a time. Teach us what it means to reflect your son Jesus and then out of that bring glory to yourself. So Lord, may your will be done in us as we continue in this journey. May you speak and lead. Help us to love as you do. I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.